You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We've got a classic show for you this week. There's no Yasrana, but we do have two pod stalwarts here in Wisdom Cricket Monthly Editor-in-Chief and Magazine Editor, Phil Walker and Joe Harmon. And we'll also be hearing from England batsman Ollie Pope later in the show. Let's get right to it. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Good afternoon, Ben. Um, Well, you can't avoid this shocking and demoralising story coming out of Bangladesh, can you? Um, Shakib Al-Hassan banned for two years, one of them suspended um, for not disclosing three different um, conversations that he's had with a with a, a murky character known by the ICC, uh, known by the anti-corruption unit of the ICC to be um, a questionable individual, let's say. Um, Shakib has admitted and acknowledged uh, that he failed to disclose this information. Um, it, it's, look, it's staggering, really. It, it's inexplicable. Uh, and it's demoralising, as I say. But how a player of this stature, experience uh, and intelligence has allowed this this situation to play out over, I think, the last... How long? Uh, from the start of this year, from the start of this year, 23rd of January to, to the 27th of August, um, th- this has been playing out um, in his in his private WhatsApp messages, which I believe he, he may have even deleted... Um, how, how this, how we've got to this point, uh, is is utterly baffling and and desperately sad. Um, it, obviously, you can't make any any grand statements on this. You know, you have to tread carefully legally, and so on and so on. Um, the generous uh, reading of it is that it's a massive error of judgment. Um, the game is the poorer for it. It's not the first time that uh, a big figure in recent years has been identified. Salah Jaya of course, was outed, if you like, banned for two years from all cricket involvement in February of this year. Uh, well, now it's happened to another icon of Asian cricket, let's be honest. Um, the, the standout uh, all-rounder in world cricket, the standout player of the World Cup, he was robbed not to have been uh, the well, the player of that tournament, and now we find this a few months later. It's 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 a dark day for cricket. I've got to be honest. It's a dark day. And how many meetings must he have sat in with the ICC before tournaments, before franchise tournaments over the years, being told exactly what he needs to do when an approach like this is made to him? And he's admitted that he thought this was a a dodgy character. 
um, worryingly, he said he wanted to meet this guy as well. So these aren't just these aren't just messages. Uh, we know that Tammy Mac Iqbal was approached by the same uh, accused fixer um, and uh, blocked him on WhatsApp and reported him immediately to the ICC, which I think is the beginning of how this whole thing came about. So Tammy knows what to do. Um, yep. Why doesn't Shakib? Exactly. Uh, Naivety doesn't stand up, does it? You know, it doesn't. And then the concern that we do have to be careful, but the concern is that there's more to play out here because yeah. very rarely in these cases over the years with fixing is it an isolated incident. Incident. They generally swell, uh, involve more people, and become increasingly bleak as the process goes on. Yeah, I just want to correct myself. By the way. Um, this has been going on since the start of 2018. That was the Tri Nation series. Yeah. He's been interviewed by the ICC for the last nine months since the end of January of this year. So this has been known by the ICC for a number of months. It's also been known by Shakib himself. Um, so it kind of puts into shade so much of what's played out in his career over the last year as well. I mean, that World Cup, he would have known full well what was inevitably coming. Uh, and as I say, he's been. In some ways, that makes it more, all the more staggering that he could yeah. do that under such, under such pressure. Yeah. I yeah. think it's also possibly worth pointing out with the deleted messages. I don't know if in the... So there, there's the full decision you can read online, which does make for quite interesting reading. But I think it just says there are deleted messages. It doesn't say necessarily Shaqib deleted them. It could have Sh- been... Shaqib confirmed that these deleted messages contained requests for inside information. Yeah, so but he might not have deleted his own replies to him, which could be could have contained this this is true anything else. this is true uh, but yeah the other thing with Shakib is that he has previously reported corrupt approaches back in 2009 yeah, I think so he knows well. what to do it's, it's, uh, it's so it's so bizarre uh, yeah. and it also comes in the wake of four uh, UAE cricketers being suspended whilst they're investigated for anti-corruption charges uh, which were related to fixes that were due to take place in the World Cup qualifier that's ongoing so if anyone was naive enough to think that uh, fixing was on its way out of cricket. Um, well, this has all shown that that's not true. If there is a positive spin, Go uh, on. these things are at least are being found out. Right, well, yeah. And we, knew, we know that there was some, certainly some dodgy matches which in the, in the 90s, 80s, into the noughties, which are just now kind of assumed to have been fixed, but nothing properly came out here. Now, what we are finding here is that at least we do seem to be getting to the, to the nub of what's going on. Um, we hope, unless there's a lot more out there that we that we don't know. I remember Nasser saying, Nasser Hussain saying um, on TV when Jaya Saria was first collared, if you like, um, saying finally the ICC is showing, um, showing some balls, I paraphrase obviously. But he was essentially getting to the point that they've gone after some small fish before. Now they're, they're, show, they're bearing their teeth now as a, as a, straight up anti-corruption unit as an organization that is not afraid of certain reputations when Jaya Saria fell you know, one of the great icons of Asian cricket of world cricket uh, alarm bells were ringing loud and clear Shakib Al Hassan you know it, it, as I say is the standout all-round cricketer in the world this is this is huge this is huge for the game and you're right kernels of optimism kernels of 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 reason in this you know and you're right there at least nobody is is inoculated from this now and reputations are falling and it's necessary and it's not before time it's worth stating he's not cheated right he's not he's not done anything that has yet been proved um but the the the, the ignorance is 
contemptible in itself. And it's, I think it's also worth stating that it's not fixing the guys approaching him to do it as a request information. for inside information. So who's playing in this game, that sort of thing, which is which is still obviously bad. I it's think. significantly different though, isn't it? Yeah, to, yeah I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. to so actually changing how you play. To, yeah. yeah. But, what did you think of the punishment? I, I think... I don't know why one year suspended. I think I think two years is personally. I think two years is right. Some mm. some will say maybe that's draconian. I don't think so. When it, it's slightly comparing apples and pears because it was the it was cricket Australia that enforced this rather than the ICC. But when you think Smith and Warner had a year out of the game for some ball tampering, which we know happens quite a lot, yeah, perhaps not to that extreme. Uh, this feels to me a little bit lenient by com- by comparison. I know it's not necessarily a fair comparison because it's not the ICC dishing out both punishments, but it doesn't seem fair really that Smith and Warner took a year out of the game and Shakib has the same when actually he's done something unbelievably stupid here. I, I think comparing those two, it's a fair shout. In, in that light, it is lenient. Um, I think all the Smith and Warner, everyone agreed at the time it was just way too harsh, right? So Not yeah. everyone. Not, sorry, sorry, not, not, not a lot of people thought not, they should have been banned from the sure, game. Not, for, not, not, for not everyone, but, but maybe us three. Sangakara yeah. said in our magazine everyone in this at the room. time <laughs> that uh, they were carrying the can for 30 years of misdemeanours. Um as in Smith and Warner. If if Shakib Al Hassan has to suck this up for two years as a consequence of so many other cases having been ignored or suppressed, uh then then so be it. And by that token, therefore, you know, it could be considered lenient. And I don't think that's an unreasonable position to take. Um, it's interesting to see how the split has play is played out on social media. You know, I mean, there are many people massively up in arms uh, in in Bangladesh, in specifically, but across across large parts of Asia as well. Whereas, of course, in England, the, the you know the moral police are out in force. Um, and while it, generally it doesn't kind of sit that comfortably for me to be in that category, in this instance. I'm so demoralised by it and I'm so tired of this story year after year after year, decade after decade, that I'm, I'm with Michael Vaughan. How about that? I'm with Michael Vaughan. Blimey. Someone write that down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms, Edit that bit out. <laughs> in, t- in terms of the consequences themselves, this does mean he's almost certain to miss the T20 World Cup campaign next year because it dates from exactly the 29th of October when the decision was revealed and by that point, Bangladesh will be, I think... In past the first stage into like the group stage proper, and so I don't think he's going to be able to play in that tournament, which is which is a, a big punishment. But yeah, you're right. Okay. And this is um, I, it was interesting seeing the reaction of the Bangladeshi his Bangladeshi teammates who are to a man at least the ones that I saw hugely supportive and talking about this in terms that some awful thing had just befallen Shaki, as though it was almost out of his control that this has happened. And I thought that was kind of that that felt to me like missing the point as well. I'm not saying they should pile in and dig in, but but it, it did seem like they were being too... I mean, it's, this, let's be honest, talking about the World T20, he's massively let them down here because we all know that Bangladesh, without Shaki, but a kind of a pale imitation of themselves, really. Yeah, and you wonder why, where that, that attitude stems from and how prevalent these kinds of cases may actually be in, in real terms. Um, I don't know. Maybe this, these cases are one-offs, but the fact that this actual individual has already been... Uh, approaching Tammy Mikbal and now he's approaching Shakib Al Hassan. Um, you you wonder just how how prevalent this continues to be in the game. We knew how rife it was years ago. Perhaps we haven't moved on quite as far as we as we hope for, and that there had there is a kind of normalising of of these kinds of instances in certain parts of the world. 
Yeah, I think with with Shakib and how the his teammates are sort of approaching this, it's probably worth looking at the the background and sort of his very swift fall from grace of being in a way a hero of the Bangladesh players strike standing up for the little guy in a way to to now so I'll, I'll just run through yeah, that you bang on there I mean this kind of brings it into even sharper light how sad it is because we were absolutely thrilled by the the, the outcomes of this this albeit quite swift strike mm-hmm. from a week or so ago yeah um and lauding the player power in Bangladesh and how progressive it was, you know, especially in terms of sort of parity of pay between between the, the male and female side. Yeah, talk talk us through the details of the strike. Right? So there's quite a lot to go through and Sam Dyer wrote a good explainer on the Wisdom site, which is worth checking out. But I'll go back quite a long way because it involves the BCB taking back ownership of the BPL franchise, I think is where it kind of all stems from. So that was in part because of the BCB wanting to put on two tournaments in a year, but mostly because of a dispute which actually also involved Shakib. So he left Darker Dynamites and joined another team. And the Dynamites then kicked up a fuss and forced a rule change where all the players would just go back into the pot ahead of the new season. So he'd switch teams and would then be a new auction. So then the BPL franchise started kicking off and so the BCB just took back ownership of the competition. So all the franchises were actually not franchises and centrally owned. So that meant pay cuts, which contributes large amounts to causing the strikes, but also meant that the BCB took the chance to bring in some new rules, which included uh, that each side in the BPL and the NCL, which is the first class competition, had to field a leg spinner and a 140 kph plus bowler in right. every side they play and that the leggies had to bowl their full quota in t20 games which in some instances would just be cruel wouldn't it, <laughs> it really would be that's ridiculous <laughs> some teenager who's kind of gone for 30 off two overs like go on have to bowl you another two yeah and i don't know how you judge a 140 kph plus bowler as well is that just someone who's once bowled a ball that quick is it is it or a leg spinner who's never turned it off the straight <laughs> yeah that's true yeah um so yeah but that that was actually what one of the demands in this strike was that the BPL went back to the franchise model and also that there was sort of better pay, that yeah, that, that there was equity in pay and they were satisfied that these would be met, the demands would be met, although it wasn't made exactly clear in what way that would be. Uh, but yeah, the BCB president, Nazmal Hassan, was sort of cryptically complaining about the timing of this strike, which didn't seem to stack up and now I guess this is why. Kind Makes of some sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I guess that... that all, or makes the drama around the hundred look rather tame, doesn't it? Yeah, although on the hundred, Shaki didn't get picked up on the hundred, yes. and uh, a few people were surprised by that. I wonder if some people had already got whispers that he he wasn't a player to pick, to pick I, up at being knowing that he was a band was likely to to come. I, I think almost certainly. Yeah, because because we know that agents are very involved in sort of selling their players to teams ahead of this, like saying pick this guy for this reason. Although well, Stranger is in the auction at all, really, if he knew this was coming. But then, if he hadn't been, then it would have been the story would have probably come out a bit earlier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, grim. Yeah, moving on to slightly slightly lighter news. My moment of the week was uh, Lisa Kitely being appointed England women's head coach. Yeah, announced this morning for us. Yeah, yeah. I think she, to people was a bit by surprise, right? I think so, but she has a strong CV. She's done a lot of good work in Australian domestic cricket, and I think from her case, it feels entirely deserved. Which I meant is, more the timing. I think people were expecting yes, it in the new true. year rather yeah. than yeah. So then that, that's what they, they'd given themselves that much time, and they'd already confirmed that. Ali Maiden, who was the as was Mark Robinson's deputy, would take over for the tour to Malaysia to play Pakistan, which he'll still take charge for that, and yeah. she'll take over in the new year. Uh, but I guess yeah, that once they'd sort of figured out who it was, there was no reason in waiting, and good to give a bit of clarity. But yeah, it's also the fact that it's entirely deserved is important because she's going to be the first full-time female head coach of the England women's team. Which uh, and as as you've written, Phil, she might or we might well have seen the last male head coach of the England women's team. 
if, uh, if well, sort of Charlotte Edwards and Lydia Greenway, I guess, not quite ready for this, but they're coaching in the 100 and might and well. Danny Hazel as well. Yeah, yeah. All these players could be future future head coaches. Yeah, as, as was acknowledged um, in, in the build-up to this, you know, privately among people who were involved in the setup, there, there wasn't a, yet an outstanding English female candidate. Uh, but when Claire Connor told a room full of journalists a few weeks ago that there wasn't just a male-only uh, list of candidates, there was a, a def- an audible hum in the room. Um, and then it felt like a significant point that she'd made at the time, a significant distinction she'd made at the time. And then when you scrabble around an admittedly still quite small pool of established female head coaches around the world, you do a light on Lisa Kiley, um, who was involved with the Australian national side 12 years ago as a coach. You know, she's really done the hard yards. She was academy director of the England women's, England women's set-up for five years. That would have been crucial in this as well, definitely, won't it? Definitely, definitely. She, she's An she's outsider who's also with, an insider. Exactly. She's close with a number of established figures as well within the, the English female game. Um, just as an aside, I did a training session on the nursery ground uh, with her and some of the England team a few years ago. So I can guarantee she will not suffer falls because she did not suffer me. <laughs> oh, was that when you did the fitness yeah, thing? Yeah, with... I was absolutely blowing out of various... Yeah, that was quite uh, funny. So to speak. Yeah, that was quite funny. Not for me at the time, but but surely for everybody else. But yeah, she, she I think she is absolutely uh, the smart and sensible and rousing choice, really, as I, as I say. Uh, we may have seen the, the, the last male head coach of the England women's cricket team, which which is a, a quietly significant moment yeah. and a progressive one and she, a good one. She, she was also uh, a brilliant player in her own right back at, back in the day. Yeah, she, I think she made 100 at Lords. The first it? woman to make a century at Lords, apparently. Yeah, you'd uh, take that, wouldn't you? Yeah, ODI best 156, which you'd, you'd probably also take. So, yeah. 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 And who better to take down the Aussies than an Aussie? Yeah. As a she knows the big bash league inside out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah all, so, all so it's good news, I think, this one. Um, and, and a smart and, as I say, sort of encouraging move by Claire Connor and Tom Harrison and a couple of others were on that committee as well. Um, yeah, it's a big job. Look, let, let's not escape that. It's a big job. We saw how wide the gap was between the Australian and England setups over the summer. But with a big big year coming up next year, 20 million extra investment, 40 new pro contracts. It's a it's a big time for the female game and and. And it's a great job for her to take on. Yeah, and I, I guess also the timing with the T Twenty World Cup. Obviously, England want to do well and want want to win it. But she, in a way, she has a bit of a a free pass almost. You'd think like that that they'd they'd excuse almost like maybe a semi final exit at this point with someone taking over a new team. And is she running that? She, she'll yeah. she'll that, that, run, okay. I think that'll almost be her first her first task will be that which is in February and she takes over in the new year. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So so Joe, what, what's your moment of the week? My moment of the week was uh, yesterday morning chatting to Ollie Pope, um, who is off to Loughborough today for a couple of days and then flies to New Zealand on Monday for the for the test squad. Um, spoke to him for a piece, upcoming piece in the magazine and uh, on the website. Uh, and he's a really, I mean, we all know his, his stats are absolutely extraordinary. In fact, I even I put it to him. I said, "There's this stat going around. Have you heard it? That he, with his first-class average of 58.79, is the highest of any English batsman ever to have played 30 or more games." So I put that to him, expecting him to kind of squirm a bit, because uh, young young players particularly don't like kind of the the pressure of those stats uh, hanging over their head. And I completely understand that. 
And he said very cheerfully, yeah, I took a screenshot of, of that. Uh, <laughs> he did say, I don't think I'm going to be averaging that that much come the end of my career, but was was embracing it and was excited by it and said, what, what a thing to to drive him on and and the thing that really struck me is he's just a, a young man who has everything in order you see that when you watch him bat you see that when you speak to him it reminded me of speaking to Joe Root when he first came god I feel old saying that when he first came through just it, it, it's not kind of he's not bursting with charisma or personality necessarily but he's just got everything very clearly wired in his head and knows exactly how he goes about things and and I think we're going to play a little bit of the interview now. And one of the things that, that most struck me in that is how well he talked about this time he had out injured. He was out for four and a half months. or didn't play championship cricket four and a half months after dislocating his shoulder early in the season. And he talks about what a, what a benefit that period was for him in, in terms of getting his game right in his head and then being able to deliver it on the field for the final bit of the season, which got him in this test squad. And here's that bit that Joe mentioned. So you're sitting there thinking about your batting, you can't do any yeah. batting, you couldn't even be shadow batting particularly yeah, when you've no. got your shoulder in that problem. So are you watching footage? Are you watching other people bat? How, how are you, how's your game developing when you're not even playing? Um, probably for, so I sat down with Vikram Solanke and Andy Flower who, Andy saw me play a fair bit in India uh, on the Lions and obviously Vic's seen quite a bit of me and we sort of sat down and thought what can I improve on to make myself successful or make the myself more successful and we thought that looking at it the way I get out the most was probably that fifth stump um, fifth stump nick off and that's what teams try and go for is yeah. they try hanging out a little bit more in county cricket to me now uh, so we decided to move across stand a little bit further across my stumps middle and off rather than middle just sort of allows me to leave the ball um, especially early on in my innings, a little bit easier, and um, so that was the the thing that I changed. And I just looked back at some footage of what I did, what my when I've bad, not necessarily when I've scored a lot of runs, but when I felt my best, um, and opposed to when I felt probably my my worst somewhere like India, where I sort of I got a few scores, but I never really felt like I was. In Nick, did uh, you not? Because I thought that uh, first innings, you you looked really fluent. Yeah, oh, sorry, that. I meant the India Lions. Oh, oh, sorry, yeah. see, see, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just tried to work out, and now in my head, now it gave me a bit of time to reflect on that, and just like you said, because I haven't played a massive amount, things can change without you realizing. Yeah, and it's quite hard to draw back and see what you're doing here, what you're doing there. So yeah, we decided to I'd stand a little bit further across, and that just helps me because I'm good off my pads. It helps me just line up that ball. So, and that's so. I mean, for the end of the season, that was um, that helped me quite a lot. That's been interesting to have been thinking about all that stuff for so long, and then actually have the opportunity to yeah. to get in the nets and do it. And then so pleasing that when you do get out in the middle, yeah, the runs came pretty much immediately, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. My, yeah, the first Red Bull game was that Hampshire game, and. The first T20, I got 47, I think, against Middlesex. So that, was, that was really nice to know that... that Probably the first T20 was the, the biggest one for me, knowing that I'm back in. I felt as good as I did. Right. Or if not, better than before. So that was a massive confidence boost um, moving forward. Uh, and this winter and beyond, um, when you got into the England side, you were batting four, which you hadn't done in professional cricket, I don't think, before, no, before that pod. Not in Red Bull, definitely. Um, now you are batting four for Surrey. Yeah. Uh, Joe Root's now batting four for England. going to drop yeah. back down to four, he said. So it seems like the most obvious potential spot is at number three. Yeah. Uh, have you batted three for Surrey? I haven't seen you. Uh, have I batted three? I don't think I've batted three. Um, 
No, is, I don't think I have in four day cricket. No. Is it a position you've got your eye on, and is it, and is it a position that you think your your style is well suited to? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm. Um, I haven't been told where what if if I'll definitely be playing. Hope, uh, where I'll bat if I do play, but if I I feel like whether that be at three, four, five, or six, I think I've I feel like I've got a solid enough technique, good enough mindset to. Definitely, I say I wasn't ready against India. I've I've had these experiences of being in in the fifth over of a first class game now quite a few times, and it's definitely something that I can deal with. I'm. I feel like I'm good enough in defence and I can punish the bad balls. Uh, I feel like wherever they wherever they did tell me to bat, I think I feel like my game's pretty suited to do it. Do you think there's anything specific about number three? As, as it's a bit difficult if you haven't actually done it, but as a technically and from a mental perspective, do you think there's anything di- different about that position? Because um, there's, there's a kind of aura around number threes, isn't there? There is, it? yeah. It's almost changed to the number fours now, really, with the so, so Smiths. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I honestly, I'm one to. When I when I walked out number four for England for the first time, it didn't feel I didn't feel out of my place at that, in the, especially in that Lords Test where I'd never walked out that early. I feel like I wherever, whether I'm on sixty on a flat wicket or I'm on a wicket that's moving around a bit, I play the same game. Um, and as to whether we're fifty for three or two hundred for three, okay. I feel like my game is pretty suited to just playing at my own fluent method and and just be successful wherever because. Yeah, like like I said, I feel like I've my game's solid enough to deal with um, whether it be a moving ball or a slightly flatter wicket. I've I find a, hopefully find a way to deal with that, whether that be a three or six or five. That, that's quite that's quite impressive. That stuff, I think, as you say, he's he's quite a kind of mild mannered sort of lad. But there's a definite steeliness there in what in what he said, and 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 he fancies it. You can tell he fancies it. He knows that he's got an obscene weight of runs behind him and he also knows that he's not going to be waiting on the outskirts of this test match team I mean he plays in a week or so doesn't he he plays in that side the only question Joe is where yeah, where well, are you I, well I put I put it to him there and obviously in, in what we were listening to that he, he should be eyeing up number three or could be eyeing up number three I think he's probably going to start and he as, didn't shrink from that he did didn't, he? no he didn't he went straight in, in there I think he's more likely to start at six I think looking at the makeup of this squad with if we think that it's going to be Sibley Burns, Denley keeping a spot at three, Root four, Stokes, they're not going to shift from five. So Pope comes in at six, which Ben, you were saying just off, off air, you think that's the sensible starting yeah. point for him? Well, I, th- I think that's how functioning test teams should work, really. When you've got a bright young youngster, they come in at six, cut their chops and then move up when they're ready rather than this weird situation you had where you had like all the senior players wanting to bat at number six so that the only spot for a young player coming in was at three or four when they obviously weren't ready. And as Pope was saying, he'd never batted at four in his first-class career before he did that for England and never come in as early as he did in his, in his first test innings, which is an absurd situation, really. And this 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 is the way it should be. He can, yeah, he can bat six through the winter, maybe through next summer, and then at some point after then start thinking about moving up the order. I he, guess he, it's just he bats attempt- at three in the end for me. Well, I get yeah, the, And there is that temptation yeah, yeah. When, when he's... Churning out the, the runs that he is, there's a temptation to think, oh, is, is six getting the most out of him? But I, I, do, I accept your point, Ben. I think you're probably right. I think we might be being a bit over-eager if we want him to bat any higher at this stage. And also, it's, it's just where the best spot is for the team. And that's where England have perhaps fallen down in the past. They can kind of tie themselves in knots. Denley deserves a shot at three. We can't move Stokes from five. So the natural spot 
is six and that, I think that makes sense for, for the time being and this this is a 15 year test cricketer we're looking at as well so oh, ste- steady no, steady but, 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 I, it, but with the potential we've got to be careful to I almost treat him with as, as careful as we can because we don't want to ruin that by asking too much too soon also there probably won't be any test cricket in 15 years but anyway we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that alone yeah you're right and what will sustain him is the good old-fashioned orthodoxy of his technique and I wrote a little thing on him in the current issue of the magazine that's just out today that, that in a way the the true radicals are the odd the odd players who bat for four six hours who bat sessions um and that the the ten a penny players now are those who ramp it over their shoulder and and flat bat it you know behind themselves and this that and the other and the, the funkiness has been normalized in young players the really interesting players are those with the the, the fundamentals to bat all day, and this is what this is what Pope has, and it's Sibley, what, it's what Root has, Sibley to an extent as well. Not in such a uh, kind of easy on the eye manner, but Sibley's been picked for that exact reason too, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I spoke to the academy director at Surrey, Gareth Townsend, who's who, who saw Pope when Pope was a ten-year-old, and probably watched him hit more more cricket balls than any other person alive, I would say. And and, and he says that's what stands out. He he has the fundamentals to bat time. Uh, and there's a hunger there as well. I mean, you see the scores that he's made for Surrey. You know, there's two double hundreds in there. There's 146 in there. There's a 158 not out in there as well. They are big hundreds that the kid's making. And he's, and he's what, 21? 21 year old. Um, yeah, believe the hype, Ben. I get you. You know, it's always that temptation to get carried away. But, but the numbers are staggering, and the way that he goes about it is so impressive. And another thing Townsend said, he glides from red ball to white ball. He said, like Williamson, like Root, he glides from one to the other because of that fundamental technique that he has. Yeah, I, I love that he that he knows the numbers as well. I mean, you, you had it in that interview, and he said, when you came back, I think you did pretty well. He's like, yeah, I got this many runs in the first-class competition. I got this many runs in T20 cricket, and he, he, he knows it exactly, which is good. He, he kind of knows his own worth, I think. Is well, when I put that stat to him I said uh, some cricketers love stats some don't where do you sit on this kind of cricket nerd spectrum and he said all, all cricketers are into their stats anyone who tells <laughs> you otherwise is, is just lying and I'm sure he's absolutely right some are obviously more obsessed than others but I don't think there are many out there that don't know their first class average I'd be surprised yeah. uh, so sp- speaking of the magazine we've uh, we're let it slip for a few weeks but we're resurrecting read of the week and uh, Phil's going to introduce that one for you now am I? yeah yeah go oh, for okay. it okay yeah well we have a a new columnist, newish columnist, Zafar Ansari, um, into his third or maybe fourth issue uh, with the magazine. I think it's the third, um, uh, and he's written a, a rousingly brilliant piece about Ravi Bapara. It's stunning. It's lovely. And yeah. It is stunning, um, as you'd expect from Ansari, anyway. Um, who, of course, retired from cricket at twenty-five a couple of years ago. Um, uh, and has kind of been persuaded to to come back into the fold with us at least. Uh, and he writes, he kicks off this piece about Ravi in in light of um, Essex's double, uh, the the performance that Ravi put in in the final against Worcester of the T20 when he he took them home out of nowhere. And of course, the the surprising news to many um, that he's off to Sussex at the end of the year. Um, uh, and he begins it. 
Ansari by saying there's a few cricketers who just make you feel inadequate, which is a great first line anyway, and one I think we can all adhere to. James Anderson immediately springs to mind, he writes. Darren Stevens sometimes did it with bat and ball in the same game, but right at the top of the list for me was Ravi Bapara. So that's his intro into the whole piece. He says, bowling to him was a nightmare. No matter how hard you tried, he'd always find a way of outmanoeuvring you. He could flat sweep, slog sweep, dance down the track and hit you straight or over extra cover. Then he'd rock back and banish anything dropped fractionally short. So the first half of the piece is an acknowledgement of the bloke's obscene, beautiful talent. But then, as he says, at this point, a pivot often occurs with the Papara story. And then he becomes, then he's damned with that faint praise of talent, God-given in speech marks. Uh, and how there is a certain subtext that, well, he didn't quite crack it. He didn't quite make the most of what he had. Um, and he quotes a journalist, not me, incidentally, from a few years ago, saying, you know, many words spring to mind when you think of Ravi Bapara. Talented is one, certainly, but unfulfilled is surely another. <laughs> Which journalist is that, Phil? I, I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I think that's just the archetype cricket journalist. I know who it sounds like. Anyway. Yeah, it does actually sound like someone. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, anyway... He, he rejects this, um, Ansari, and, and he moves along a kind of meditation on what, on what talent amounts to and how we have to sometimes look past the sheer numbers. And the aesthetics as well can sometimes end up imprisoning a player um, inside his talent or her talent. You know, the, the Ian Bell conundrum, if you like. And he does mention Bell, albeit in passing, but in the context of Papara, and he says... In the case of Papara, it's highly relevant that his prime years happen to coincide directly with those of Bell, Trot and Peterson, three of the most successful middle-order batters to have played for England in decades. And he writes, and it's a good point, and I've thought this before myself, so it's, it's, it's amen from my side. Imagine Papara was 26 now with the record he'd already accumulated by that age. Remember, he made three hundreds, three test hundreds in three games when he was just go, getting going. The record he'd already accumulated and the importance of being in the right place at the right time is thrown into sharp relief. It's very difficult to accept, he writes, that in such circumstances he wouldn't have played many more tests and scored many more international runs. Um, it's also worth pointing out, of course, that he made 13,000 first-class runs, 257 first-class wickets and played 120 ODIs. So, that's not a failure. Yeah. But it's very interesting the way that he combines, Ansari combines all of these different points. So it's part love letter and it's partly a meditation on what talent actually means in cricket above all other sports. Um, it's fair to say that he's he's warming up very nicely to his task here, Zaffa. How good is Zaffa? I mean, this is probably a bit boring for some listeners, but the practicalities of being a columnist as well. And this is no reflection on the rest of our columnists who we, who we love dearly. But Zaffa <laughs> is... A bit of a reflection. Well, maybe. <laughs> Bursting with ideas, uh, has too many ideas to fit in, in each month and uh, is so punctual that he's pitching his next one before we've even gone to print he, with the previous one. You, he laps himself, doesn't he? You know, he really does, yeah. which isn't always the case with some of the other less punctual columnists. <laughs> and I'm not talking about Jonathan Lee there. <laughs> <laughs> always flawless when it does come in, though. Yeah, he also... There's a little, always flawless, that is true. There's a little kicker at the end of that piece where he says he puts so far in brackets and talking about... Rover Parra's England appearances and do you think do you think there's a world in which he uh, he plays the T20 World Cup next year? England don't have a lot of those finishers. They've got loads of top order players, but they don't have someone who can come in and instantly assess a situation and know what needs to be done to get you up to 
a defendable toast lord or chase 12 and over in the last three or something. I think there is a world. I think it's remote, mm-hmm. uh, barely visible. Uh, but I think I think there is a, a chance that, as you say, he, he fulfills a role that we don't necessarily have a huge amount of options in. And he's also done it so many times. And, that, and that's really a Australia, advantage. Right? Yeah. yeah. Maybe not his ideal conditions. He got that brilliant 60 or didn't he? Yeah, though? but he did at Brisbane. 60 something in 20 something balls, yeah. sure. I'm thinking more more with the ball. I'm not sure mm. if his like raggle taggle collection of of I don't even know if you need that though. Like I think it's the no, same with not. Lewis Gregory. Maybe, I think maybe not. He might warrant a slot a spot at six as a sort of floating finisher just to do that. And there's enough all rounders in there as when you've got Mo Rashid Stokes all likely to be in that team. You, you shouldn't be short of overs. So Ravi could effectively play as your as your number six specialist well, look, batter. It would be a stunning end point. To, to a to a thrillingly colourful career. In in the meantime, as Ansari just finishes up, in his eyes, Papara's an overachiever, which is a nice flip on the whole idea. Uh, and as he put it, Papara described himself as just a guy from East London who didn't come from a cricketing school. Uh, and yet, as Ansari says, he went on to play 171 times for England. If there's going to be 172, then then bring it on. Uh, I struggle to imagine that, but what a what a what a piece of work by Zaffa has to be said. And of course, what a way to finish off with, with Essex as well—a double, a double to complete, an astonishing three years for that county. Um, we cover it again in this magazine elsewhere as well. And um, just to put that into context, Essex have now won 19 trophies in the 41 completed seasons since they won their first comfortably more than any other county out there. They're the most successful modern county in English cricket. And more than Surrey and Yorkshire combined? Is more that than right? Surrey and Yorkshire combined in the last 41 years. Yeah. So, so talk us You've through... You've read it, Ben. Oh, I have done, yeah. I, 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 I quite, I I quite like too. the magazine. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's pretty good. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk us through some of the other highlights? Yeah, why not? Well, Parkinson and Mahmood is, is the cover story. So when's this going out? Yeah, this will go out before the first T20, which is Friday morning, I believe. Thursday night, Friday morning. Um, you assume that those two Lancashire kids will play in that first game and make their international debuts. Um, You've got a a cheeky leggy with a big mouth uh, and a fast, natural, fast bowler, um, very serious-minded Saqib Mahmood. They're a good kind of chalk and cheese, little and a large kind of of pairing, Uh, but they are with the white ball, as interesting and as exciting as, as English cricket can offer. And it would be great to see those two roll out on Thursday night, Friday morning for England. Um, they speak really well together uh, and their record stands up. One's tw- They're both 22 years old. They've played in the same age group for years, growing up through Lancashire, Lancashire leagues, uh, Lancashire age group cricket. Um, and they've got something quite special, I think, those two. We've been banging on about Parkinson on this show for a long time. Um, Mahmood has had his injury problems, but he kicked on last year. Brilliant in white ball cricket. Only played a little bit in red ball cricket, but did well when he did. Mm. Same with Parkinson. Parkinson took 10 for in his first red ball game last year and only played three, I think, the whole year. Well, they're, they're wild cards for the test squad, aren't they? But in terms of white ball cricket, they're absolutely nailed on selections, I think, and... Certainly in Parkinson's case, it's surprising it hasn't come a bit earlier. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and you're right. Mm. They are in that test squad as well. Um, two test matches, not part of the World Test Championship. So England have been freed up a little bit, I think. And and I'd be surprised if one of them didn't get a gig in the Red Bull stuff, actually. The, and this is the thing we're, we're riffing on as well. It's probably worth putting in context that England selected seven 24-under uh, 
cricketers in their squad for New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, so we have obviously we've spoken to Mahmoud Parkinson. I interviewed Dom Sibley. Uh, Zach Phil's, Crawley as well. Yeah, did a profile on Zach Crawley. Taha did that one, and Phil's profile Ollie Pope. So these are these are five of the seven in that squad, and uh, as we've called them, they're England's young radicals uh, in in different ways. Uh, uh, Parkinson and Mahmoud more radical in how they play the game, but as as Phil said, Sibley and Pope kind of counterintuitively. So yeah, it? and there is that sense of renewal, I think, with this side now. You know, Root's been in charge for two years. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that ashes, it's the ashes run, isn't it? You know, it's well, the two-year ashes run. Ed Smith, called it a, about it. Ed Smith called it a new cycle when I went to that squad announcement, and he he was definitely <laughs> seeing it in that sense, and and said that the World Test Championships points aren't on offer here, gives us a little bit more leeway to 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 try things. But I don't think it would have been hugely different, even if there was World Test Championship points on offer. And actually, there's a lot at stake here. I think you said Ben that England goes to number two in the world if they beat New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, that, that's right. In in the the test rankings which which still exist i think also as well as this being the ashes cycle it's the uh it should be seen as the winning an india cycle which is at the start of 2021 and the last series that england play before the world test championship final so to blood in a few <coughs> players who could be like parkinson should be key there yeah. and so to get him in now is is, is vital and pr- probably the same with the same with mahmoud uh he's sort of a, a little bit quicker and has offers a bit of the Sort of, sort of feels a bit similar to maybe a, sh- a chamois type bowler. I don't know. Like, um, uh, so that's also what they're looking at. And obviously, the Ashes after that. But yeah, I love the squad. I, I like calling them the under twenty four seven. But the young radicals is also good. Um, you're still trying to get to catch on, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I see what you've done there, Ben. Yeah. All right, we'll leave the cute stuff to us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, just one little thing on Saqib, who is a really impressive young thinker uh, of the game, as well as a, as a serious talent. He has. Two different run-ups for white ball and red ball cricket, but not significantly different, but just one yard different. So he has the same number of strides for each run-up, but one run-up is slightly longer than the other. The white ball run-up is slightly longer because he wants to be able to be stretching in his delivery slide, uh, delivery stride to create a more slingy action. And his theory is that if you're stretching a bit further, then your body's slightly lower, so your arm is slightly lower on, on its trajectory, and you are therefore able to get more movement in the air with the white ball. With the red ball, he wants to be more controlled, more upright, and hit that length time after time outside of stump. It's an idea that he's evolved himself. <coughs> he's talked to others around the game. No one's ever done it before in English cricket that anyone can remember. Talk to Anderson. He's never heard of it before either. But he says it works for him. And now he is able to float from one uh, format to the other without it affecting either. Um, it's just an interesting development for a 22-year-old quick who's... And there's sometimes that kind of laziness, ah, oh, well, they just run up and wang it down. Well, he's the opposite of that. It bodes well, doesn't it? And people say the most important thing about becoming an, an international <laughs> cricketer is, is as learning as you go and learning quickly. And he seems to have that in him, inbuilt, ready and to go. And thinking yourself as well, not yeah. waiting for someone to tell you what to do. Yeah, yeah it's impressive. Really impressive. Yeah, I guess the slinginess as well, as well as the swing, the trajectory is <coughs> important in terms of uh, not being able to get underneath it, I guess. Like part of the reason why Malin's been so yeah. successful is you can't. Yeah, exactly. And a bit of reverse swing as well. He mentioned that, you know, the lower the arm, the, the slingier the action, the more chance you might be able to get a bit of reverse. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, it's a radical squad, this this lot. And and we, we wait and see how it's going to play out. They play, what, nine test matches, I think, this winter? Eight or nine test matches? Yeah. Two plus four right. plus three in Sri Lanka, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, nine test matches. Yeah, big winter for them. Yeah. A big winter for Root as well, you know. 
as as the leader of it. Do, do you want to just what what what? Do you want to just quickly run us through the other, the other highlights in the magazine? For people uh, interested in can do it? just briefly. Well, Dan Norcross writes a brilliant account of the of the season um, in his own style, yeah. an inimitable style. I should also we should throw in Jonathan Liu, especially seeing as I've dissed him off, for his yeah. punctuality. <laughs> um, he throws us forward to twenty twenty nine and. Uh, a dystopian future for English cricket where we're down to a, a one ball format. Or the maybe one. utopian, depending how you look at it. <laughs> Possibly true. <laughs> um, yeah, and as as ever, it's uh, beautifully written and cheekily done uh, and definitely worth a read. Yeah, uh, and if I could direct people to one particular piece as well, written by um, an outstanding writer, Joe, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, called Rod Edmund, um, who's written about the former Middlesex seamer, Wes Stewart. Uh, a victim of the Windrush scandal whose personal story um, encompasses a lot more than cricket ever could. Um, uh, he died earlier this year or maybe at the end of last year. I think it was earlier this year. Earlier this year, it's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's one of those powerful, profound stories that really does. Um, it, it takes it outside of cricket and into something far more, far more powerful and relevant. So that's a really brilliant piece of work. Uh, but there's, as ever, plenty of good stuff. Cool. And where's the best place to, to buy that? All good news agents and <laughs> online. I don't know if it is all good news agents. WH Smiths, but Some actually, we, the best way is get get to wisdom dot com. Go to the yeah, shop and, and get your, get yourself a, get yourself a copy. Cool. All right. Um, so let, let's finish off with just a few of the other goings on in cricket around the world this week. Australia have claimed their T Twenty I series against Sri Lanka. Uh, David. Warner made a lot of runs, as you'd expect, including his first T20i century, which is maybe surprising it took him that long. They weren't exactly arse-nipper games, those two, were they? No, not, no. not looking great. It doesn't, doesn't bode Shranka. well for the rest of Sri Lanka's winter against but Australia. It's just, it's just bizarre, because Sri Lanka looked pretty good against Pakistan. I mean, what, one, excellent, one 3-0 against the <laughs> number one side in the world. Yeah. Just Sri Lankan cricket continues to lurch from the sublime to the ridiculous in the space of a, a month or so. Um, and in the 20, T20 World Cup qualifier... Ireland, Papua New Guinea, Namibia and the Netherlands have all qualified for what they're they're calling it the big dance. You heard Ugh, this? That's so a, rank. That's what going for. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> so some people Why suggesting are they that, calling it the big dance? I don't know, but some people are suggesting that if you get a tied game, it could go to a could go to a, a dance off. <laughs> nice. <be> fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, Ireland, Papua New Guinea, Namibia and the Netherlands have all qualified for that and they will be joined by two of Scotland or well, one of Scotland and the UAE looks like Scotland the way that game's going and one of Hong Kong and Oman. Uh, so yeah, exciting times there. In, in a way, although UAE, UAE might be going out, impressive for them considering, as we mentioned earlier, the, the four players getting banned, including their captain. That is impressive. But PNG are the real story there, aren't they? Yes. To, to beat, beat the big dogs in a yeah in, yeah uh, the not, big dogs in the big dance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not 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 a huge amount of names you'd have heard of. Grant Jones has now stopped playing for them. Uh, but yeah, they all come. There's, I think most of the, of the team come from a town trip of about like. 40,000 or, or, or not many in, in a country that's already not small and not got a huge amount of resources. And a, a good news story for them as well after the thing with their under-19 team who couldn't go to the World Cup because of uh, having to forfeit their qualifier. Uh, so when, shoplifting yeah, incident. Yeah, 10 players were, were arrested for shoplifting in Japan, yeah. which is uh, very sad. And this is, this is nice. And it's their first World Cup of, of any description which is lovely, yeah. Yeah, fantastic story. Um, and it's been one that's been rumbling on for a little while. I remember Geraint Jones going and playing for PNG where he was where he was born. And they came pretty close to qualifying, I think, previously. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so fantastic they've actually got there. Yeah, and, and their women's team are about the 12th best in the world as well, having finished fourth at the uh, the equivalent qualifier there. So that's, uh, yeah, good news around for them. Um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, but thanks, thanks very much for listening. Uh, thanks for coming on again. 
Phil and Joe as oh, ever. Mate, no worries, it's Ben. Pleasure. Absolute as pleasure. As it's been a while. Um, yeah. And uh, and yeah, if you enjoyed it yourselves listening, please subscribe and tell your friends. Yeah, do that, please. Podcast Network.